Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Troy Harmon, author of All Roads Led to Gettysburg. Troy Harmon is the author of All Roads Led to Gettysburg, a new look at the Civil War's pivotal campaign. Now, in the book, you say that uh, the book argues against the standard interpretation of the Battle of Gettysburg as an accidental last option fight. Can you explain what that standard, that standard uh, definition is? Yeah, the standard uh, traditional is uh, on why the battle occurred at Gettysburg was that the Confederates came into the town looking for shoes. And that was debunked many years ago. Uh, the Confederates looked for supplies in every town, but Gettysburg was not known for shoes. And whether a few of the men needed shoes or not, that wouldn't justify an entire army spending two weeks in Pennsylvania. Uh, so why were they there in the first place? Well, once the uh, shoe story was debunked, and it has been in, in several different articles and books over the years, that really left a void, a vacuum of, so why were they there in the first place? Uh, do armies that large and that experience, Gettysburg was the 14th major battle, do they just simply stumble onto each other and run into each other? And so over the years, the idea of it was a meeting engagement started to develop. That is, on the fly, both armies discovered each other and adjusted. And I argue against that, I argue that it was deliberate. So let's talk more about your argument. You, in the subtitle, it says it's a new look. What's mm -hmm. new about it? It follows the agency of water, rail, and road, and mountains, and passes, and everything to do with man-made environment and natural environment. That humans can't just merely do whatever they want. There are constraints and restraints. Like you and I might want to buy a million-dollar house, but unless we have money in the bank, we can't just do as we please. And the same is true for generals in the field. They have to conform to water, rail, road. They're principles of war, too, that are just as true as Newton's uh, three laws of physics. If you jump off a building at a certain height, um, it's going to be painful when you land. So in the military, there are similar rules like that. A uh, horse or a mule drinks 10 to 15 gallons of water a day, so you have to follow water. You can't venture away from streams. So uh, you talk about how some of the historiography was detached from this environmental context. Why, why didn't people look at the environmental context? Uh, the environment was emphasized the first 20 years after the war and the historiography. The first books that were written focused a lot on the mountains and the roads and, and the environment itself and the bountiful uh, produce in Pennsylvania. And, and that had to do with because the veterans themselves had not written their memoirs. That wouldn't come until the late 1880s, early 1890s, when the official records, that's uh, the memorandums and the reports that the soldiers wrote during the battle, until they were declassified in the late 1880s and published and made available to the veterans so that they could jog their own memory, look at their notes that they hadn't seen in 25, 30 years. 
and then from there read the reports of people that fought around them and they could create context and write memoirs. The shift in the mid 1880s and then into the 1890s was more towards concrete information about decisions made during the battle and controversies uh, that uh, made its way to the newspapers as the generals would write about their perspectives. That silenced the environmental aspects and the environment took a back seat to the point where it disappeared. It disappeared from the um, dynamics of why the armies were there. Now, one of the historians that you mentioned was Edwin Coddington as one of the more influential mm -hmm. uh, battle historians. So what was his approach to the battle? His approach was he was tired of Confederate histories that focused on how Lee lost the battle and what Jeb Stuart did wrong or, or what Longstreet didn't do right and how Lee was let down by generals in his army. It was everything to do about how the Confederates lost the battle and that was the historiography really up through the 1940s. And by the 1960s, Coddington uh, said, let's focus on what Meade did right. Let's focus on how the Union Army logically made decisions that led to logical outcomes and how, um, how the Union Army won the battle through uh, measured decisions on the battlefield rather than what the Confederates did wrong. Now, uh, another factor in the historiography was the influence of the lost cause. Uh, what was the lost cause and how did that influence interpretation of the battle? Yeah, the lost cause has a, a series of tenets to it and uh, the ones that most directly relate to what we talk about every day in the park would be uh, or talk about in Civil War dialogue most of the time are that the Confederates couldn't win the war because of logistics, that they lacked shoes, they lacked supplies. It was inevitable that they would lose. And Southerners told themselves that after the war. It made them feel better about losing the war. If they thought that it was insurmountable, that the Union Army had many more troops and uh, much more munitions and supplies. Uh, another aspect to it was the South put a great deal of emphasis at Gettysburg on Longstreet being late. He was a senior corps commander under Robert E. Lee, late in his attacks on July 2nd towards the Round Tops and late again on July 3rd in what came to be known as Pickett's Charge. The Lost Cause also blamed um, General Ewell for not following through at the end of the first day of the battle and seizing Cemetery Hill. So um, the South, again, it was uh, scapegoating people. It was um, the, the Lost Cause tried to find explanations with it's basically, it's a southern spin on the story. How did uh, changes in technology, like the rise of the internet and digitization, you know, from the 1990s and the early 2000s up to today, how did that change the ability of people like you and other historians to research this battle? That's a great question. In the 1960s or 70s, there were only a handful, and really into the 1980s, a handful of people that were able to write and publish books. I remember when I started at Appomattox as a ranger in 1984, uh, you go in the bookstore and there were just a handful of books and they were the staples and everyone in the Civil War subculture knew there were certain books. And the reason for that is that professors wrote those books and they would take sabbaticals for research for 
one out of every seven years, their college would send them somewhere, and they would have to go to archives, fly there, stay there, accommodate there. And most people didn't have that kind of time uh, or access. But then that began to change, as you indicated, in the 1990s when the Internet is commercialized in 1996. Information starts to become available to a much wider audience. And then early on, the Internet was mixed. Uh, there was information that you couldn't trust. But over time, major institutions started to put uh, digital records that you could get access to. And major publications like JSTOR and others, very credible references, became available to everybody. So that led to an increase of uh, this, uh, people involved in the conversation producing books. Uh, just a, prolifer a proliferation of books have come out since the, uh, the advent of the Internet. Now your book focuses on these environmental factors, water, rail, roads, mm -hmm. mountains. If we were in a balloon sitting above Gettysburg, give, give us kind of an overview of what we would see. Um, you mean during the battle or leading up to well, it? Well, just, just, yeah, just in terms of the, you know, some of these different elements, say, on the eve of the battle. Well, the, uh, the ridges on the battlefield are only as important as the roads and the rail and the water. For instance, uh, to try to tie it all together, if, if, the, uh, if Dan Sickles gives up the peach orchard on the second day of the battle, the peach orchard is, the orchard itself is not important. It's only important is that it's the Emmitsburg Road. Or the, and that was one of three accesses to the battlefield for the Union Army. It was one of their three escape routes. As a general rule, whether you're a firefighter and a structural fire, uh, or whether you're a soldier going into the front lines, before you take up a position, you identify the escape route. And if you can't identify one, you don't go in. So the three primary uh, routes, escape routes, tentacles for the Union Army to Gettysburg, and if they had to suddenly leave, would be the Emmitsburg Road, the Tawnytown Road, and the Baltimore Pike. So if you give up, for instance, uh, if Sickles gives up the Emmitsburg, if he gives up the Peach Orchard Ridge, he's giving up the Emmitsburg Road, his escape route. It's like a fireman giving up his escape route out of a building when a building's on fire. Uh, if the South had taken Cemetery Ridge during Pickett's Charge, the ridge itself, there's 10,000 ridges like Cemetery Ridge in South Central Pennsylvania. The ridge itself is not a standout. It's only important as it's linked to road. Uh, so if the South takes, in Pickett's Charge, Cemetery Ridge, they take the Tawnytown Road. And with the loss of the Emmitsburg Road the day before, then the Union Army has only one way out. So they have seven infantry corps, 40,000 horses and mules, having to use one road to leave if they suddenly had to, whereas it required three for them to arrive. So that's an emergency. Uh, you would, so you would, what you would see from above is you would see ridges that the Union Army occupied as it related to covering water, rail, and road. Uh, for instance, Cemetery Ridge is also only important as it covers the Tawnytown Road, but it also covers Rock Creek. And uh, water is central to an Army's survival. Uh, the Union Army uh, would need hospitals for four months, so they have to have streams, and that was Rock Creek.
So the alternative name for Gettysburg, had it ever been given, would be the, the Battle of the Monocacy Rock Creek, like the Battle of Antietam Creek or the Battle of Wilson Creek. So um, w typically when you set up a line of battle in a Civil War battle, you set up the field hospital three miles behind the line of battle. And that's because the wagons, and this has been true all the way back to antiquity, the wagons carrying a wounded person from the front lines, the hospital can't be more than three miles because the person might not survive a four or five mile track horse-drawn wagon. But then again, the hospital can't be only two miles or one and a half miles from the front lines, the position that you choose, because uh, overshots would uh, land in the midst of the hospital and make them untenable. So the perfect balance for a Civil War battle, for instance, is to have your hospitals three miles behind the main line. So when Cemetery Ridge was chosen and Cemetery Hill as the key positions on the battle, it was in part because of its relationship to Rock Creek being about that distance behind the lines. That's where your hospitals are. So I want to talk a little bit about water mm -hmm. in this. When the Army of the Potomac crosses uh, the Potomac and comes into Maryland, uh, are they scouting in advance? Eventually, they would end up, Meade would end up aligning the troops along a creek near Westminster or mm -hmm. northwest of Westminster. Uh, would, would they scout something like that out in advance? Absolutely. Uh, Governor Warren, who was the chief engineer for the Union Army, to a number of the soldiers on the battlefield, north and south, he was Professor Warren because he taught engineering at West Point. So uh, Warren briefed General Meade when he took over about what Hooker, Hooker resigned in the middle of the campaign, had been thinking about doing in terms of how to get the Confederates to leave uh, and go back to Virginia. And in the process of briefing Meade, he told him about the various creeks in the area. He mentioned uh, Big Pipe Creek, Little Pipe Creek, and those were the original water lines that were being looked at. So uh, Governor Warren would have been a perfect person to make that assessment. I have in the book an account, someone who wrote for a Boston newspaper, and he was an embedded reporter traveling with the Union Army, and he predicted on June 29th, in retrospect, 48 hours before the battle, that the battle would probably occur in Gettysburg or just west of Gettysburg based on water. Now, the Monocacy River runs north from the Potomac. You know, the Army of the Potomac that fought at Gettysburg, armies were named after water, Army of Potomac, Army of James, Cumberland, Tennessee, Ohio, Mississippi. Uh, armies were as dependent on water in the 1860s as armies are dependent on petroleum today. So, I mean, you wouldn't take a, you wouldn't take a five-hour trip today in a car without a place every so few miles to be able to charge your battery or to fill up with gasoline. In the same way, armies didn't travel where there weren't arteries of water. So the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army of the Potomac, followed the Monocacy, and that led through central Maryland into south-central Pennsylvania. It was really the only water artery that could be followed. So it would be the only place to refuel you know, a horse or mule drinks 10 to 15 gallons of water a day. The Union Army had 3,000 ambulances, six horses and mules per ambulance, 18,000 horses and mules alone just pulling ambulances. That's not including the artillery, 
vehicles, uh, the ammunition vehicles. And so you need water, and that's, that's the main point here. But if you follow Monocacy north from the Potomac River through central Maryland towards south central Pennsylvania, as you do that, once you reach the area of uh, near the border of Maryland and Pennsylvania, the Monocacy has branches almost like a tree. So think of my arm as the Monocacy running north from Virginia up through Maryland, and the Union Army's following the Monocacy. When they get to Maryland, on the far right, the first branch is Little Pipe Creek, then Big Pipe Creek. Then if you move out of Maryland into Pennsylvania, it's Rock Creek, then Marsh Creek, then Tom's Creek. So these, think about if you were to build a house, you need septic, water, and electricity, or you don't build a house there. Civil War armies needed a water utility hookup. So, yeah, so that, that would explain why the Union Army followed the path that they did. They followed the Monocacy River. And, and that would have been knowable for the Confederates. They would have known that was the only branch of, of a major river going into south-central Pennsylvania. So when Union Cavalry comes into Gettysburg, is that one of the things that they're looking for when they're assessing the site itself? They're Absolutely. looking for the, those water sources? Absolutely. And the cavalry itself couldn't have survived without the water. They wouldn't have been there without the water. Now, the Confederates also, uh, in February of 63, in retrospect, five months before the battle, sent Jedediah Hotchkiss into Pennsylvania, and he got a county map, uh, presumably out of the courthouse in Adams County, Gettysburg, and took that back to Virginia, along with other, a lot of other county maps from courthouses in south-central Pennsylvania and western Maryland, took that back to Virginia and pieced it together in this massive map. I've seen the original. It's in Hanley Public Library in Winchester, Virginia. And it's the map that Lee used all throughout the battle. And it, it shows the water, rail, and roads um, in great detail. So the Confederates didn't advance willy-nilly into Pennsylvania. They knew the names of the towns, they knew the roads, they knew where the water, they knew where the rail lines were. Well, let's talk more about their advance. Okay. Uh, you know, they would come up into the Cumberland Valley and of course you had a Cumberland Valley Railroad there. How important was that rail line to their advance? So important. Um, Antietam in September of 1862, about nine months earlier, had set the precedent that the Union Army was capable of sending supplies to the battlefield rather quickly. And on the day after the Battle of Antietam, this would have been September 18, 1862, supplies arrived arrive from Washington via the northern central to Carlisle and towards Harrisburg, and then on to the Cumberland Valley rail line, which would have followed the Shenandoah Cumberland Valley along the Blue Ridge Mountains to Hagerstown, just outside of where the Battle of Antietam was fought. That was done in a matter of hours and essentially resupplied, in part, McClellan's army if he needed to fight another day. So to prevent that from happening again, the Southerners intentionally targeted rail in Pennsylvania and in Maryland as well. They targeted the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in Maryland. 
They targeted the Northern Central, which would also be called the Pennsylvania Railroad right after the Civil War. It runs north from Relay Station in Baltimore all the way up towards Carlisle. And really, actually, it runs all the way to, to uh, Elmira, New York. Uh, the, that, the Cumberland Valley Rail Line was also targeted. Pickett's troops were tearing up the Cumberland Valley Rail Line west of Gettysburg in the Cumberland Shenandoah Valley. On the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, they were tearing up rail. So they, these are not random acts of violence or anger management problems, the Confederates, you know, tearing up rail. They tore up sections of a span of 100 miles of rail creating huge breaks in, in the lines. They just create an area where they would take ties out, set up a bonfire, melt the tracks, twist them like Sherman's neckties of a year later, toss them in the woods, and create these breaks in the middle of the rail where you'd have to stop and fix them. And they did that so the Union Army would be reduced from modern transportation systems to pre-modern forms of transportation, mule, horse, wagon, Rail, yeah, so they tore up rail intentionally. Now, on the Union side of that was Herman Haupt, mm -hmm. who was running an operation to counter what the Confederates were doing. So talk about him and, and what, how his operation worked. Yeah, Haupt um, it became famous for his bean poles and uh, corn stalks. That is, he took small woods. He would use small uh, timber, essentially. It was very hard wood. And he would crisscross them in what we would call trusses. And that's, that's the strongest uh, geometric shape that you can have. The Romans used to be, build archways. Think of a Volkswagen with its, uh, that's the strongest, a curve shape, arc shape is the strongest formation there is because if something is pointing up, think, think of a roof of a house with a truss. It's hard to push it down in fact, if you push it in the middle, it's going to distribute the weight evenly to either uh, stretch of wood in opposite directions. And it's hard to invert something that's pointing up. So he learned how to take small hardwoods, crisscross them, and build several stories high and create bridges that you would think would require steel. And he could do it in a matter of hours. And then he started to create uh, prefabrication bridges. So think about if you're you're going down the highway and you see a place along the road there where they're selling houses and you can buy them and have a flatbed take it to your property. That's what Herman Hope was doing. He was constructing bridges and then transporting them by rail to wherever the Confederates burned them and then putting them in place. He got so good at that by 1864, the Confederate cavalry quit burning bridges because in a matter of three or four hours he brought in a replacement on a flatbed and just replaced what they had burned. Uh, he inspired Andrew Carnegie's steel cage construction, the steel cage construction that led to skyscrapers that led by 1920 to cities being larger in populations than rural areas for the first time in human history in the 1920s because of steel cage construction you could build up multiple stories, that meant you could have critical mass in cities. You could put more people in a smaller space because you could build up. We can trace that back to Herman Hulp and his trusses with hardwoods 
that were later converted into steel cage construction with steel and the Bessemer converter. Carnegie made that famous. Now, the unit that he was overseeing was the U.S. Military Railroad Construction Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, as the, the Army of the Potomac would move into some place like central Pennsylvania, that, that south central Pennsylvania that had been, had the Confederates tearing things up, how was his corps operating in conjunction with the, the Army of the Potomac? Yes. Um, what he did was he would go, first off, he talks about this uh, in the Gettysburg campaign in his uh, reports. He went to Harrisburg to meet with Darius Couch, who was in charge of all emergency troops for the state of Pennsylvania. He met with him, and then he also corresponded with Montgomery Meggs in Washington. Some of this was by telegraph, some of this in person. He even went to meet Lincoln face-to-face -face towards the end of the Gettysburg campaign to urge me to pursue. Um, so it, it would involve him, but he also had people on the ground, engineers, that would report back to him. And he gave, he gave uh, general descriptions of what they needed to do. The first thing that the engineer corps or the United States Railroad construction crews did is they went out and assessed the damage. And these are in the official reports which were declassified and printed in the late 1880s. You can actually read their reports. For instance, there's an engineer named Clow, uh, C-L-O-U-G-H, and I have him here in the book. Um, he goes along the Hanover-Gettysburg line, and he said there's two bridges fully burned between Hanover and Gettysburg, and he said there's one partially burned. He said, I think we can repair it in one to two days. And then there's another assessment where he says, uh, we can't get any closer than 10 miles to the battlefield because of burned track. And by the way, that was the 5th and 6th Michigan. Custer probably was not with them, it's not known for certain, but they went through on June 28th before Buford ever got here, and they assessed the Hanover-Gettysburg line and learned that White's Comanches, 35th Virginia Battalion Cavalry, had burned, they burned the Rock Creek Bridge in Gettysburg. People came out and watched the bridge burn. That was on June 26th. So the, the Confederates came through and burned portions of the Hanover-Gettysburg line on June 26th, 5th and 6th Michigan discovered that on June 28th. That information was being relayed through the chain of command back to Meade. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk in the book about the kind of shared language that the officers would have had mm -hmm. at the time, and you talk about terms like uh, uh, dislodge, position, decisive. They seem like ordinary words, but they had a special meaning for them. Mm -hmm. well, can you talk about that language? Yes, and that's, that's part of the broader point of the book is that the title is All Roads Lead to Gettysburg. It's not just all physical roads and rail and uh, water and mountains and valleys. It's also philo all philosophical roads. And that goes to your question here. There are military principles at work that would require the armies operate in a certain way, getting to the battlefield, fighting and leaving. In other words, there are constraints and restraints. Now, those words are very revealing um, because those military terms open up a world that most lay people would never see. And I remember the first time I looked through the reports, you know, 30 years ago, 30-some years ago, I read right past these words. They meant nothing to me. 
and over time they've you if Lee for instance is writing to Jefferson Davis Jefferson Davis and Lee both are military people Davis had been the Secretary of War for the United States uh, Lee had been the superintendent at West Point so when they write to each other they don't elaborate for uh, people that are not in the military so they use words that are loaded terms and once you learn them it, it unlocks everything for instance dislodge uh, if you look at Robert E. Lee's first official report filed within 24 hours after the battle no, no one in Richmond would have read it for 10 days to two weeks but he wrote it while the thoughts were fresh in his mind he said to Jefferson Davis he said we failed to dislodge the enemy from his position and gain possession of his position. I remember when I first read that, I thought, that's, that tells me nothing, you know, and I thought, this is almost a waste, you know, that, that you would uh, write so few words. But that's all military people need to write to understand each other. He said, first of all, we failed to dislodge. Well, people have written volumes of books about what Robert E. Lee's plan was at Gettysburg. And it's all found in that one word, dislodge. Dislodge means you're trying to get someone rolling back. So uh, think of a tree, for instance, that's fallen in a river and it's lodged there. Lodged, and we use that word lodged. And your goal is to get that tree floating down the river. So you go in with a saw and you remove the branches that are scratching the basin of the river and it won't allow the tree to move. And then you take a two by four and you lodge it under the tree and you try to leverage it to get it to, and you spend all day and the water's muddy and you can see dirt floating in the water and you sweat on your brow. Eventually, you get the tree dislodged and you watch it float down the river. Have you got that picture in your head? All right, that was what Lee's battle plan was at Gettysburg. He was trying to dislodge the Union and get them rolling back. Why? Because in route, the, the Union Army would have either been jammed up on one road, which causes spacing to be compromised, which causes panic to spread and metastasize quickly. It also allows, it also allows for cavalry to pursue. And in transition, sometimes an army falling back will take more than one road, if they have access to more than one road. It's easier to defeat an army when it's divided. Jaminy says, sometimes armies have been defeated for no other reason than they fail to stay together. That's why an army is most vulnerable when it's marching to a battlefield or leaving a battlefield because if separate roads are taken, the army is divided in two or three parts. That means uh, your enemy can send scouts down any one of these roads, locate, uh, determine location, morale, strength, and then attack with twice that number and defeat in detail. A lot easier to attack someone when they're divided and overwhelm them with two to one odds separated than once the army unifies. So Lee was trying to dislodge also politically falling back across the Maryland line if the Union Army falls back across the Maryland line it's only 12 miles from Gettysburg but with the Telegraph and in the newspapers within 24 to 48 hours major newspapers in Chicago, New York, Boston Philadelphia would read, Lincoln abandons Pennsylvania in time of emergency. South leaves with the 
harvest of 20,000 sheep, 30,000 hogs, 20,000 cows. Lincoln probably doesn't survive that politically in the 1864 election. In those days, you had, nowadays when you're running for president, it's been this way for the last 75 years, you have to carry Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and it's been that way for a long, long time. In 1860s, you had to carry Pennsylvania and New York or you had no chance to win the election. So headlines reading that the Union Army was dislodged and they abandoned Pennsylvania and the Southern Army took South Central Pennsylvania's, Pennsylvania's harvest and were not ousted, Lincoln probably doesn't win Pennsylvania in 1864, which means he loses 64 election. So the Southerners were trying to dislodge a uh, couple more words there. Uh, possession. Lee says, uh, we failed to gain possession of his position. Possession is a military word. When you plant a flag on the battlefield, it's, it's communicating possession. Remember when the uh, Marines raised the flag on Iwo Jima? They only controlled Mount Sarabachi, but they were sending a message to everyone in foxholes down below. We own this island, we possess this island. When Armistead planted the rebel flag in the stone wall at the angle in Pickett's Charge, that was an offensive statement. He was saying to the Pennsylvanians there, we own this position. Uh, when the Star Spangled Banner was sung, uh, rockets, red glare, bombs bursting in air, gave proof of the night our flag was still there. The British bombed Fort McHenry all night you could see sticks of dynamite flying all night. And the next morning, that tattered flag was still flapping. And the Americans were saying, this might be rubble, but we own it. And that's, possession means taking something and holding it. And then finally, position. We failed to take possession of his position. That's a terrain-oriented objective. A position, uh, Longstreet said to General Lee, no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. That's a military word. Position means that the attacks, for instance, Pickett's charge was to take a position. And what's the position? It's always key terrain. What is that? Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge. So uh, those words, uh, detour is another one of those words you mentioned. Uh, Lee says the, that, uh, that Stuart in his ride took a detour. Well, that's a loaded word. It's a military word. That's right out of Jemini's Art of War. And what it means is it's a sign of weakness. Uh, a football team, for instance, runs straight ahead. That's a sign of strength. If they're doing a lot of trick plays and misdirection and going around the ends, it might work one time. But you do that two or three times, you're communicating to the other team, we don't have a front four to move you off the line of scrimmage, which from that point on, they've pretty much lost because they've communicated weakness. A detour, a detour means taking a wide circuitous route. It's a sign of weakness. So all those words, uh, and they were taught at West Point, and military, a third of the Army officers that were at Gettysburg had gone to West Point. Now you mentioned Jaminy as uh, he was the source of a lot of this terminology. Mm -hmm. Who was he? Jaminy was a Swede. He traveled with Napoleon, and uh, he just rhapsodized over Napoleon. He loved him. And, but he also wrote about Frederick the Great, and he used uh, ancient examples from earlier battles going all the way back to Hannibal and uh, 
Scipio Africanus and the Caesars. He took examples from battles from antiquity all the way up to his present, which would be the early 1800s, uh, to create something close to formulas, uh, uh, like a manual in your glove compartment in your car teaches you how your car works. This uh, Jaminy's book was a manual at West Point. And that doesn't mean everybody memorized it or everybody relied on it, but they were principles. It's called empirical knowledge, knowledge that's been passed on through experience. You either learn it through reading the book or you learn it the hard way. <laughs> so, uh, for instance, you don't divide your army in front of your opponent in widely separate wings unless you bring them together before nightfall. Why is that? If you attack from widely separated points and you're trying to drive in on a central point and create critical mass on that point, if you fail to do that before darkness, because they didn't fight in the dark back then, very rarely, you don't know what will happen under the cover of darkness over the next eight hours with one half of your army, the other divide. You might wake up and be surrounded. So remember, Lee's army was divided after Chancellorsville, and Stonewall Jackson was wounded in large part because in the night he was walking out between the lines trying to find a way to connect the army. That's why he was mortally wounded because the, the fight at Chancellorsville had ended on May 2nd with the Lee's wings detached. That's why Lee had a heart attack there. He had broken the rule uh, that would be taught by Dennis Hartmahan at, at West Point when he taught from Jaminy and other, other works. And it is, if you divide your force, it has to come together before nightfall, or you're vulnerable to being surrounded during the night. You wake up, you don't know what you're gonna see the next morning. So the, uh, th there are principles there in Jaminy's writings, and then Clausewitz, Clausewitz in his book On War would draw from that. And other writings, uh, Frederick the Great's military operations book, that was also one that was used for logistics. But these were on the shelves at West Point and points of reference. So as Union troops are coming into Gettysburg for the first time, uh, are they uh, aligning their troop positions to the, the water sources that we've been talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, Union Army originally might have fought on Marsh Creek, where Lieutenant Marcellius Jones of the 8th Illinois fired the first shot at the Confederate columns five miles west of Gettysburg on Belmont Schoolhouse Ridge. That was overlooking Marsh Creek. So Buford had pickets all the way out that far. And then Marcellius rode back, and as Paul Revere Years earlier, it said, the British are coming, the British are coming. He said, the Confederates are coming, the Confederates are coming. And then, but yes, Marsh Creek and Rock Creek would have been the utility hookups for both armies. And the water framed the battlefield. So think of it this way. Think of a goalpost and think of a well-kicked football through the middle of the goalpost. And at Gettysburg, Marsh Creek, which was where all the Confederate hospitals were, and it was there water supply. That was running north-south on the west side of Gettysburg. That was the Confederate utility hookup. The Union water source was Rock Creek on the east side of the battlefield running north-south. And the two were parallel to each other. I quote uh, Captain Mead, General Meade's son, who described the water as what framed the battlefield. 
He called it a parallelogram. So you had these two parallel creeks and they came together five miles south, six miles south of the round tops at a, uh, right near the Maryland Pennsylvania border, they became the goalpost, and that would be the Monocacy. And the Monocacy flows into the Potomac, and the Potomac flows into the Chesapeake Bay. That's why Gettysburg is called the Chesapeake Bay Watershed. That's why our visitor center got a gold seal for conforming to environmental friendliness with the Chesapeake Bay Watershed, and why we're so careful about the water in Gettysburg. That's where the Monocacy starts. It's where the Chesapeake Bay starts, is in Gettysburg. Not a coincidence the Army's ended up there. <laughs> now, you've, you talked earlier about hospitals and that there need to be close to water. How did the hospitals that were servicing the, the Gettysburg battlefield position themselves with regards to water? Yeah, the water um, for the Union Army along Rock Creek, the hospital ran for five miles. And most people that visit Gettysburg don't drive Hospital Road. But if you were to drive it, it's probably the least visited place on the battlefield. But if you were to follow it and look at the Union Corps um, markers that are there, there's the 11th Corps, 12th Corps, 3rd Corps, 5th Corps on a golf course called Meadowbrook Golf Course, and then the 2nd Corps hospitals. And they, these run for five miles from hospital, Blacksmith Shop Road to Hospital Road to Sachs Road to connect with the Baltimore Pike. And as I mentioned earlier, they're roughly, depending on, on where you're standing, three to three miles to maybe as much as uh, seven miles from the front lines. And they were set up as core hospitals. Soldiers wore patches on their hats, red, white, and blue patches. So a red, white, and a red and white diamond would be first and second division. Red is first division, white second division. A diamond would be third corps. Um, a trefoil, which looks like a cloverleaf, the second corps, the repulsed pickets charged, they wore what looked like a cloverleaf. It was called a trefoil on their hat. It was red for first division, a red patch up here that looked like a cloverleaf for first division, white for second division, powder blue for third division. An ambulance driver could immediately tell by looking at the patch on your hat what division and what corps you belong to, and they could take you back to your doctor who had your records and had been treating you all along. That's how organized the Ambulance Corps was at Gettysburg. But it all relates to water. Uh, there were 20 men that we know that washed away during the battle. It rained for two days after the battle, very heavily. And it rained after a lot of cat, cats and dogs after a lot of major summer battles. And the reason for that meteorologists have guessed is because this is the era before smokeless gunpowder by 30 years. So the sulfurous smoke would interfere with the Earth's atmosphere and there would be these downpours and, and uh, in the case of tragically 20 Union men along the Rock Creek hospitals, Hospital Road, the water came up over the banks of Rock Creek into the hospital and they couldn't move, they were immobile, they were wounded and they disappeared just washed away. So uh, those banks would have been very full with water tables within, you know, two days after the battle. Now with the, these hospitals there and with all these troops and animals along the waterway, did that pollute the water while they were there, if they were there too long? Absolutely. Uh, 
one of the uh, rules that the Sanitary Commission followed was to make sure that all the animals pulling the wagons and the humans encamped downstream. So once a permanent hospital was established, you wouldn't want the men and the animals evenly distributed all up and down a river or a creek because those that are further north are going to pollute downstream. That was learned from the cholera outbreaks in 1832 and 1849. Certain mortality rates were higher along certain wells in certain cities. Roughly 5% of the populations died along the eastern seaboard in 1832 and 1849 from cholera outbreaks. And it was learned that certain wells, for instance, in New York, there was a greater fatality rate. So there was an understanding by the time of Civil War that water had something to do with sickness. So what a Civil War medical corps, uh, corps person would take away from that is we need to make sure we camp downstream so we don't pollute upstream and let it flow downstream to where others are encamped. So you try to consolidate uh, everyone in a certain area downstream. Now, I, w I want to talk about a figure, uh, John Batchelder. Mm -hmm. uh, who is he and what, what impact did he have on, on the park? John Batchelder was the first historian of the battlefield. And there were several people that were very influential early on, like Emmer Cope is another one. But John Batchelder uh, moved to the battlefield. In fact, he visited within a month after the battle. And he was an excellent cartographer. And he also went through the hospitals and talked to Union soldiers right after the battle. And he started gathering information. And these would be lifelong correspondences. He corresponded. He died in 1896, 33 years after the battle. But he began to gather information. He set up residence in Gettysburg. And um, the federal government offered him $50,000 to write the official history of the Gettysburg. And in the end, he didn't take the money and never published it because the veterans so disagreed about the particulars of the battle that he valued their friendship more than the controversy that would come from publishing the book. Now, the lads uh, published his book, late 80s, early 90s, and they, uh, they edited it and, and put together his research. So it's available. There is a John Batchelder history of the battle, but he didn't publish it in his lifetime. But he was very influential also in placing monuments on the battlefield and landscaping um, themes like high watermark or high tide of the Confederacy. He had a hand in, um, in how we remember the battle. Yeah. Well, I want to continue down that line. You talk about symbolic truths. Yeah. And you say uh, that there was a problem of conflating symbolism with military action. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, it, it, and how Batchelder, uh, that he had symbolic truths landscaped into the story after the battle. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept of symbolic truths? Yes, symbolic truth is an idea that has power over life and death. I'll give you an example. When Frederick Douglass wrote his memoirs, he wrote about his escape and how he was in Baltimore and he would daily watch a train leave there and it was headed towards Philly. And the train represented freedom to him. You and I look at it as transportation, but to him it represented freedom. And he just kept thinking as a slave in Maryland, if I could just somehow get on that train, it's freedom. 
So he watched people coming in out of the harbor to port, and he noticed African Americans from Massachusetts would come in to port in sailors' uniforms, and they had papers, and they were able to walk around free with these papers as belonging to the U.S. Navy. He thought, if I could get one of those sailor outfits, I could get on the train. And uh, he managed to get a sailor's outfit. He said he bought his ticket at the last minute. He didn't want to buy it early and then someone question it later and have time to think about it. He bought it just before the train left and ran up and the ticket master tore it, let him get on the train. He got on the train and the train went north towards Pennsylvania, towards Freedom, and it stopped because there was some kind of problem with a side rail. And he said he looked out the window and he saw a former master and he could feel a cold sweat. And he said, I think he saw me. Uh, I know I saw him. And he was just thinking, he was just hoping the train would start moving again. It finally starts squeaking and moving forward. It stopped again for some other problem. And he was face to face through the window with a, another former master. And the man, he said, I know he recognized me. And he says, I just stood there. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And he said, and the train kept rolling. It started up again. He said, I made it to freedom. And he said, I haven't written about this until now, years after the war, because I didn't want to give away my secrets in print so that other slaves could escape using my formula. But I want you to know. So the train meant is symbolic truth. And I could give you other examples in uh, history where we have uh, academics call it symbolic truth. Or the cops of trees at Gettysburg is symbolic truth. It's something that has power over life and death. That is, it drowns out everything else we might talk about or overshadows or overpowers anything else we might talk about when we were to take, a, let's say, take a, a tour out to the angle where Pickett's charges are repulsed. The trees uh, are overpowering with symbolism that this is the high tide of the Confederacy. Like you, you go to the beach and the waves come across and they leave dark lines in the sand. And you go back the next day to where you were seated and you say, look, that's where our chairs were. That's where we built the sandcastle that's washed away. Look at how far the tide came in. And you see the dark lines in the, in the sand. And then down along the seashore line are uh, shells that the tide, when it came in, left. But then the tide has gone back out. All right, in a similar manner, the high watermark monument or high tide monument that Batchelder put there 30 years after the battle is to conjure up this allegorical imagery of the Confederate attack as a gray wave coming across the fields, reaching the shoreline of Cemetery Ridge where the Union repulsed them. The markers that mark where Virginians, North Carolinians, and Mississippians got the furthest in the attack, those are the dark lines in the sand where the Confederate high tide came in. And then when they retreated, when the Confederates retreated, that's the tide going back out. The seashells metaphorically left behind are the Confederate dead and wounded. So that, that monument that's a bronze book and it's bigger than life and it calls this the Confederacy's high tide or this, the high tide of the rebellion is what it's actually called. And those trees 
have power over life and death. They're constantly, if you're tuned into the right frequency and you have ears to hear and eyes to see, they're constantly, their messages coming out from that bronze tablet, high tide of the Confederacy, turning point of the war. So that overshadows the details of the fighting that occurred along that stone wall. And it distracts you, it can distract you and overpower you and mesmerize you and paralyze you from seeing that the attack was about taking key terrain, which is the position of Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill. And Civil War battles are about taking key terrain. Uh, if you control Cemetery Hill, you control the connecting point of the Emmitsburg Road, the Tawny Town Road, and the Baltimore Pike where they come together. The Union Army is divided if you control Cemetery Hill. If they lose Cemetery Hill, now they've lost Tawny Town Road. There's only one way out now, the Baltimore Pike. And you got 5,000 Confederate cavalry east of town perched waiting for a retreat down the road where there's an I-95 traffic jam. Everyone's backed up 20 miles. Uh, it's tragic, but something like that would have been a worst case scenario. But the trees almost paralyze us from seeing the concrete goals and objectives of an attack in 1863. So that's symbolic truth. Power over life and death. Uh, no, no, we've talked about railroads a little bit uh, in this, and uh, one of the things you talk about are you say railroad books are about trains and battlefield books are about battles. These two subcultures do not communicate in a meaningful way about the battle. And how does that type of subculture mentality affect uh, people's understanding of the relationships between things like trains and the battle? That's, that's a great question. One of the things that, that I, um, I was taught early on uh, in history classes was don't announce that now we're doing women's history, now we're doing African-American history, now we're doing technological history, now we're doing environmental history, now we're doing great events history, now we're doing great people history, now we're doing cycles in history, now we're doing systems and systems and structures in history. Don't announce them as separate categories. They should all seamlessly weave together to look like real life. So I think what, what we, it's easy to fall into is it's easy to become sort of an expert at cavalry or an expert at artillery, if we're talking Civil War, or an expert at infantry. So we can know a lot about what the infantry did, but at the same time, cavalry's doing something. At the same time, the United States Railroad Construction Corps, which with African Americans and Irish, are rebuilding rail lines to connect tentacles to the battlefield, to resupply the Union with horses and shoes. And, and all this is going on simultaneous, but we get, it's tempting to have a single-minded focus where my expertise is artillery, and, and I don't see these other things going on. So that, that's what happens with railroads is that if you're a railroad, if you love to study railroads, that tends to follow the technology line of thought. So you're interested in technology. You might also be interested in the social aspects of railroads and how they change. For instance, in the... Uh, 1920s and 1930s, everyone took a train to work. 
by the 1950s with the proliferation of the automobile and the interstate highway system of Eisenhower's and uh, ramps into cities and people commuting from suburbs that are built during that period. People are commuting, but oftentimes just one person in a car, whereas 20 years earlier, they were in a train with 100 other people. So a technology historian is interested in how trains affect social arrangements. So trains fall into these different categories of social history, technological history, and don't necessarily overlap with someone who has an expertise in artillery in the Civil War. You have to bring them all together. You have to bring the environment, the, the geology, the technology, uh, the misogyny, the racism, uh, the great people, great events, structures and systems. They're all kinds of mediums, just like in art. There's not just uh, one kind of art where you paint a picture. There's uh, ceramics, there's sculpture, there's pottery, there's mosaics, and many different mediums in which to express yourself. In the same way, history has many different mediums, and you need to bring, bring in another medium is human psychology. Bring in human psychology. And, you know, it's hard to analyze someone who's passed away, but you can go back and say, uh, you know, Eisenhower did that in the 1960s. He went around with the press corps that came up to visit him from Washington to see where he and Mamie lived. And he took them around, and his tour was to stop with a cavalcade, and the New York Times was with him and all these other major papers, and he would stop and elaborate for a few minutes on what would the generals be thinking at this moment in the battle. That's psychology. And, uh, you know, bring in post-traumatic stress disorders, um, fight or flight in battle, panic. That should be woven in with technology and the environment and, uh, and with all of the other categories we talked about. So it's the blending and bringing them together. It, it's called, in, um, in teaching, this is referred to as, it's called integrative thinking. That's being emphasized now in colleges, integrative thinking. Integrative thinking is bringing together several disciplines towards a creative synthesis to come up with a new idea no one else has thought about. You can only do that by bringing all the ingredients together and looking at how they work together. We've been talking about the book, All Roads Led to Gettysburg, a new look at the Civil War's pivotal campaign. Troy Harmon, thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Phil. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.